I learned pretty early on that almost everybody, you know, there's always an exception, but most people get up every day to go to work to do something meaningful, to support their family, to learn something new, to help the company out. They have different motives, but they want to do something meaningful. They don't go to work to screw up and um, miss important metrics. And so you start to look at why things aren't happening, and it's a bad process, poor training. People weren't put in the right roles. Because at the end of the day, they all want to do something good. Welcome to Real Leadership, the podcast that cuts through the noise to focus on leaders who make, move, and process things in the real economy. Together, we'll discover the strategies and hard-earned lessons from pragmatic, gutsy leaders who operate in a world that is more stake than it is sizzle. Right here, we dive into their stories, challenges, and triumphs to go beneath the surface to the very heart of leadership in the real economy. I'm your host, Jim Weaver, Chief Operating Officer of the Owner Group, where we believe that real leadership does indeed matter. Let's go. Understanding your labor market is crucial for successful recruitment. Onan Staffing's Recruitment Strategy Guide provides insights specific to your geographic location and the positions you're hiring for. Our Recruitment Strategy Guide delivers a clear snapshot of your labor market and actionable intel to tackle market-specific challenges. With Onan's expertise, we help you navigate and win in your competitive landscape. Empower your recruiting process with the insights you need. Learn more about Onan's Recruitment Strategy Guide at onanstaffing.com backward slash strategy. Greetings. Today we're hosting Tammy Carter, CEO of E4D Technologies, a contract manufacturer and design medical device company based in Richardson, Texas. Tammy earned her bachelor's degree in business management and administration at WGU Texas and served as the director of global account management at the tech behemoth Flextronics before leaving that role to take on the VP of operations role at E4D Technologies. Today, as CEO, E4D is thriving and is recognized as a leader in their field, was actually named as a 2021 Emerging Innovation Finalist. So welcome, Tammy. Thank How are you? you. Excellent. It's good to have you today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about your current gig as CEO of uh, E4D. But if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to turn back the clock. And uh, we were talking a little bit before the we hit the record button and uh, and let you talk about your first job. Your first job is a pretty unorthodox job for a, a now CEO, right? So I started my career as a professional musician. So that's wow. a pretty interesting jump to being CEO of a manufacturing company. Um, but I grew up in a family of musicians and I played the piano and started the harp when I was, I think, about 12 and got my first paying gig when I was 15 and mom had to drive me to work. As a harpist. 
as you a need harvest, a, car. a big station wagon. <laughs> yeah, you're not throwing that, you're not taking that on the bus or on your bike. No, not in a marching band, which I was asked to. It's not a marching band <laughs> instrument. But I think people laugh, like, how did you become a CEO from that? Well, I actually started out as a receptionist, but that's another story. But yeah. Like learning to play an instrument well enough to get paid, you practice a lot. And there's a lot of just repetition and skill building and discipline. Like it's not fun to get up every day and practice. But I think that work ethic then translates to whatever else you do after that. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm biased. You know, I was, I was a musician and a professional musician in another lifetime as well. And it's, uh, it's strange the way it translates. It's, it's, it's uh, it's interesting. We have a lot of musicians in our company that have are really turned out to be great business leaders. It's it's interesting. Um, you had a a pretty long run with uh, Flextronics, and that is a company that is probably the biggest company that most people are totally unaware of. Right. Um, tell us about Flextronics, and then tell us about your role with with it's now Flex. Right. Um, and I actually started before that with one of their competitors. So I spent quite a bit of time in that space, but they are the famous outsourcing company that we read about in the news. They make all the other people's products. So if you think about any product, you've probably touched your laptop computer, your refrigerator, your washer, dryer, that red box kiosk you used to rent DVDs from. Somebody like Flex is behind maybe helping with the design, but for sure doing manufacturing in one of their global locations. So it's a very um, high intensity, low margin business. So if you're willing to work hard and problem solve, you get lots of opportunities, but you work really long hours and get to go all over the world and solve problems. So it's very fun and exciting, but really demanding. Yeah, I bet. So you're... You started, you kind of progressed with them over the, or you did progress with them over the years. Um, Tell us about what you did as the director of global account management with them. So at a company like Flex, you really are sort of a mini um, GE president of the accounts you're in charge of when you're a global account manager. So you're assigned some very specific customers and their associated programs and projects wherever they are in the world. And you're accountable for the P&L. You're accountable for all the key metrics, which is inventory turns, obsolescence. You don't have many, if any, direct reports. So it's a very matrix. You're working Mm. with people all over the globe to meet customer expectations, but none of them actually report directly to you. Uh So it's a very interesting, it really hones your leadership and influence because you have to convince people to do what you need them to do. And by the way, you're rarely the only project or customer they have in their factory. So it's how do you get things done and understand what they need to do to meet their objectives, but also knowing that you're accountable to make sure you're meeting the customer objectives, which ultimately tie to corporate profit, loss, inventory management objectives. Yeah, I I imagine in that job, you were able to see the inside of a lot of different organizations and a lot of different operations, you know, work sites. So what what were the lessons you learned? What did you, what did you learn in those years? Everybody's leadership gets developed by the people they're influenced by, but 
Boy, that location, you're literally working with hundreds of different companies and their leaders. Plus, it's a huge organization itself with factories all over the world. So in my roles that were often global, I'm not only interacting with external companies, but all the different leaders in our own company and different divisions and different factories in different parts of the world. And I think sometimes you learn what not to do as much as what to do. Yeah. Um, There was a period of time where I was sort of known as the problem solver. So when something wasn't working well somewhere, Tammy, get on a plane and go figure it out. And at first there was a lot of, it must be the people, but I learned pretty early on that almost everybody, you know, there's always an exception, but most people get up every day to go to work, to do something meaningful, to support their family, to learn something new, to help the company out. They have different motives, but they want to do something meaningful. They don't go to work to screw up and um, miss important metrics. And so you start to look at why things aren't happening, and it's a bad process, poor training. People weren't put in the right roles. Mm. Because at the end of the day, they all want to do something good. And I think watching managers who could figure that out and refine those teams, they always performed better than the ones that were dysfunctional, that didn't have trust. There was a lot of command and control. And so at the end of the day, we were results driven, but I found out really healthy teams that work well together, even if they don't have that superstar on them, always got better results than the teams that had a level of organizational dysfunction or distrust or the one person that had the big ego and wanted all the attention. So that was really a motivator to me about how I wanted to be my own leader is creating that culture where everyone gets a chance to do what they came to work for and making sure they're equipped to do that. Yeah, culture eats strategy for lunch, right? Boy, and you don't want to think so or at least early in my career, it's like if you just work hard and you have goals and you execute, but boy, you find out when you don't equip people well and give them what they need, you can have a great strategy and nothing gets done. Recruiting top talent is tough. Onan Staffing focuses on people, offering exceptional benefits to attract and retain dedicated workers. Partner with us for flexible, data-driven solutions. Visit OnanStaffing.com to learn more. Why do why do so many lean into strategy, retooling, you know, as the answer? Why do so many people miss that about teams? I'm a totally, I totally agree with you. <laughs> why, why is it so easy to go? Oh, we just need to, you know, get a new crew in here, swap out. Right. Why is that? Why is that the de- default? The only reason I can come up with after years of watching it is those things are easy to measure. Mm-hmm. You know, you can quantify um, how many people rate per hour, part per minute, whatever your measure is. Um, Trust, high function, health seems soft. But I've just proven it over and over again, and, and I've proven it in many parts of the world, is a healthier team will deliver all those hard results than an unhealthy team. But it's not intuitive. And maybe it takes a little bit more because you have to dig a little more as why is this person not being successful? What do they need to be successful? You can't just come in and put up a new chart or, you know, 
put up a new measurement or start a new right. t- stopwatch. Those are really easy to do. Yeah. And maybe in the short run they help, but they don't give you long-term sustained results. I, 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 it would be easier. It'd be easier, right. but it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, you really carved out an impressive career in manufacturing, starting as a harpist. <laughs> um, historically, that's been a very male-dominated dominated, uh, sector, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you manage to do it, you know, especially when you were getting started? Oh, that's probably longer than we have on the podcast, but let's no, try let to, let's, let's try to be succinct. Um, I think part of it was... Um, being a musician, but I also was raised in a family with a dad who had a really strong work ethic and grew up pretty poor. So he was just about, you just got up every day and you found a way to make it happen. You overcame obstacles. Um, He had, I think, one year of college, just really was about learn more, get educated, and try. And just keep being a solution, bring, solve problems. And so I just did that. I didn't know any other way. So if there was a, a need to volunteer for something, I would raise my hand and I, I'll figure this out. And fortunately, that environment, if you were willing to try it, they would give you the opportunity. And I was successful. Um, but I did have to, um, I was often the only woman in leadership or at the table and had to learn how to um, make a space for myself that was unique. Um, I don't believe that I worked with men who didn't want me to be successful, but they had been trained to be leaders in a culture that wasn't used to making space for people of color or women. So naturally, they did things that were that kept me out, and I had to find my way in. And I just was tenacious enough and stubborn enough to find a way to make space. And then I was very lucky, probably later in my career, I had two um, male bosses that saw what I was capable of and really gave me a launching platform. And so I'm forever grateful because they saw what I had been doing for the last 10 years and gave me space to really thrive. So that was very helpful. I don't know if I'd be where I was if it wasn't for them recognizing what I had been doing and giving me space. Yeah, we all need folks folks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you say in, in show prep, I've heard you say that it's important for women to be in manufacturing. And, and you were coming from a standpoint of business success, not just because it's right, but it actually feeds business success. Why, why is it? Why is it important um, to, to make that space and, and have that diversity for a business to thrive? I think there's a lot of pers- reasons for that. I was gonna say perspectives, but I think it's more reasons. I think there's a really basic one, which is most of us are making products that have a global user. And so it's good to have people of different nationalities, different ages, different genders, have perspective in product development because they bring perspective and diversity that ultimately might reflect your end users. So there's just a very practical thing that says more people you have that have different mindsets, you get better products, you get better ideas. I also think that women particularly, um, I love manufacturing. I love watching somebody with an idea on a whiteboard or a napkin, and that becomes a real product someday. Mm. That is still my favorite (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) But I think at the end of the day, just like diversity of culture, women look at 
product development and people and problems in another way, not a better way, a different way. And when you have more ideas and perspectives in a room, you get better processes, you get better problem solving, you get healthier teams. Um, And let's face it, the workforce is going to be more and more 50-50. So let's make all workplaces equitable for all people, because frankly, we're we're going to need the workers. If we just yeah. want to be practical about it, yeah. we're going to need the workers. And it's a great space to be in. I love it. I left it once shortly and was bored out of my mind and came right back to it. Mm. So I want that to be the same opportunity for women. I want them to not feel like my only option in manufacturing is to be maybe in supply chain or in accounting, but they can be CEOs. They can be engineers. They can lead R and D teams. Um, it's all possible. Accomplishing diversity, equality, and inclusion directives can be challenging. Excelsior Staffing, a certified MBE providing staffing solutions for light industrial sectors, has been helping companies like yours find success since 2007. Strengthen your diverse team with Excelsior. ExcelsiorStaffing.com You mentioned strong... um, mentors that you had so let's let you be a mentor for a second Mm. um so if there's a a a woman who's maybe maybe in her 30s and has aspirations to do something similar to what you've done but is looking at this mountain and thinking oh my goodness it's i don't know what the thought would be but you know it's it's complex you know it's not working it seems like it's working against me whatever the thought what would be your advice to uh to that 30-year-old, maybe younger self. Oh, well, I think it's important to do it the way that works for you. So you can read a lot of blogs and articles and books about how women need to show up at work. But the truth is we're all on a unique journey. And what worked for me might not work for them. But I also think you need some resilience and grit because it doesn't get handed to you. So you can't expect somebody to give you a seat at the table. You have to be willing to ask, maybe even politely push and shove Mm -hmm. to get a seat at the table. But not in the way that you disrespect the other people who are at the table, but just to say, I also have a voice that's worth hearing at the table. So when I talk to women and I I do some executive coaching, it's like, first, what do you want? And then let's create a path of how to get there. Maybe you don't want to be CEO. You just want to get to this point. Well, let's figure out what that looks like for you that allows you to have integrity because most of us want to have other things in our life. We were talking earlier about music, whether it's your hobbies or it's your children or it's um, a nonprofit you're passionate about. Work is important, but it's rarely everything. So how do we create a path that allows you to meet your career objectives? but at the same time not sacrifice the other things in your life that are important or recognize that for this season you are and go in with it eyes wide open that in order for me to get to this next place in my life, I'm going to have to sacrifice something. I think the concept that you can have work-life balance is frankly baloney. I was going to use another word, but we're on a podcast. Um, But what you can do is figure out how you integrate it in a way that works for you. And that's different for different people. And so don't try to live someone else's path. But it is going to take some 
tenacity and commitment and sacrifice. Like I gave up things um, to get to where I was. I don't regret that, but I didn't get to have everything. I had to make choices. Mm, mm, mm. Talk more about it being baloney. I think I think you just, but why is that baloney? <laughs> BS I think, or whatever we want to I, call it. Yeah, for sure. I, I I think we've been sold this this conversation that we can have balance, and it's kind of like the word fair. Well, what does that even mean? Depending right. on who you're asking. Um, what's balanced for me versus balanced for you? And I just have not found in my own experience, much less the hundreds of people that have worked for me or worked in companies I have, that anyone ever feels like they have balance. They're always making trade-offs and choices. I yes. think the important thing is be aware of that and do it consciously versus mm. um, not aware of what you're doing and the consequences of that. We all are choosing every day where we yeah. prioritize our time. Just do that eyes wide open, but don't try to fool yourself. I think so many women I hear, and and I can't speak for men, but the women I talk to, that feels like so much pressure. I'm trying to find this balance. I don't have balance. And I Mm. frankly just tell them, well, give that up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, give up that, but let's talk about what's important to you. And then how do we figure out what you want to prioritize? Because you'll never feel like you have balance. Mm. I think that's elusive. It's kind of like what's fair. Well, depends on whether you're asking me or, you know, a two-year-old. We have a very different view of what's fair. Yes, yes. Wow, that's great. That's funny what you said. I don't know if you said, I don't know if, what it's like for men. I think maybe there's less pr- internal pressure for balance. I think men fall into the trap of of getting one-dimensional easier, and it's maybe more socially acceptable for men to do that. Uh, and then the the pull is, oh, you really should be more balanced or, or whatever. But that's kind of external. Uh, I think your advice to go in wide, eyes wide open, because we all lie to ourselves or we all have the temptation to lie to ourselves. Um, and, you know, we got to be real about yeah the trade-offs, what we want what we, and realistic about, you know, hey, there's 24 hours in a day and uh, we got 80, 90 years on the planet. Right. We got to be really purposeful about how we spend it. That's that's good. And you know, you said something there that just struck me is I have a couple of employees that have young children, and I have to remind people if the dad takes time off because it's his day because they're out of school, people are like, "Oh, you're such a good dad." Right. right. But when mom does it, no one says a word because that's what moms do, right? Yeah. And I mean, he is a good dad. But she's a good mom, too. And we have to start normalizing that being a parent or whatever it is you're doing is equally important, whether you're male or female, because we still do. If if the guy does take on some child caring thing, he gets put on a pedestal. Yeah. Often. Yes. And the mom is just, well, that's your job. And yeah, it's or both the mom of their gets jobs. A hard time, like you would need to figure out childcare situation. Right, you know? right. Yeah. That's even worse. It's even worse. That's right? even worse. Yeah. I like what you said too. Um, you know, it's it. Men and women are different. We're different, and that's why it's important to have good representation right. of both on uh, on a team. And and uh, and it's not one's better. One, you know, obviously, no. uh, but we're different, and we need to embrace that. And and it's a strength. You know. Um, and, I've, oh. and men are different from each other and women are different from each other. Yes, so I yeah, think right, just having right. 
being able to just, I think that's what traveling internationally showed me that people want to be respected and heard and have value. It doesn't mm. matter who you are, where you are, or how old you are. If you kind of come to the table with, we all want to feel like we're contributing something important, you can probably get something pretty important out of that conversation if you start with that mindset. Land top technical and professional talent with Focus. Focus specializes in direct hire and contract placements, connecting you to exceptional candidates in IT, engineering, management, and more. Elevate your team with Focus. Visit getinfocus.com. Let's talk about E4D. Yeah. Um, what do you do in your So work? we are um, a design... Well, full product lifecycle. So basically, we're going from design of a product all the way to aftermarket support. So as I was saying earlier, that somebody who comes in with that dream, that sketch on a napkin, helping them bring that product to life through a design process, then manufacturing it. And then we do for a lot of our customers aftermarket support. So that might be spare parts, repairs, refurbishment, which is relatively unusual for a small company like E4D because that's a lot of the same things a company like Flex might do, but at a much... Yeah smaller scale. And our, our sweet spot is typically high regulatory, high quality pro- products that are pretty complex. So one of our main products, we actually have the IP on it, and we private label, is a medical device that's used in dentistry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our customers are their aerospace defense or some sort of equipment that has some sort of regulatory or testing mm. component to it. Because we okay. get that whole traceability documentation that's required because whether it's automotive, aerospace, medical device, they have a lot of similarity in terms yeah. of their requirements. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you wouldn't think those would be connected, but that makes a lot of sense. So why do, uh, why do customers work with you as opposed to your competitors? We actually get customers who've gone to somebody like Flex or one of the larger competitors and found out we're just not big enough because they have a niche and we're just not there at volume yet. We don't have that kind of repeatability or volume yet. We're earlier in our product. Our product doesn't have that kind of mass scale, but they need some of the complexities that something like Flex has. So they might need the regulatory expertise or they need some design support or quality expertise, as well as manufacturing. And we have a global supply chain, so we know where in the world to buy parts, whether it's hmm. local or overseas, and we can do import and exporting. So we often are that mini flex for people who aren't ready yet, or maybe aren't ever going to be ready for somebody like flex. And you have customers in 20, 25 countries. Is, did I read that correctly? That's correct. Yes, yeah, so you are internationally. You're sourcing internationally, and you are you have customers internationally. Wow. Um, of course, you're CEO, but you've also uh, sort of taken on the title of uh, Chief Cultural Officer. So, what does that mean? You've been you've been deliberate about that. What does that mean? At the end of the day. I don't know that we like it, but as leaders, we are responsible for the culture of our organization. And if we don't keep reminding ourselves that we're responsible, because for us, it's very clear what we want. We're thinking about it all the time, but if we're not deliberate about it, our employees don't know what we want, what we're setting, the culture we want from people. So I have to remind myself that my job is to talk about the values we have and what 
acceptable behavior is and what our goals are to the point that I'm probably tired of talking about it, recognizing that for them, that's just enough to help them see clearly. It's how we interview. I participate in almost every interview of a new employee because I want them to hear from the beginning the behaviors and culture we expect. And if that's not for them, it's okay if they don't want to work for us. Um, I write notes to every employee at least twice a year on their birthday and on their work anniversary that has something to do with our values and something about them. Because that's a way that we make sure we preserve what we think is an important attribute of what makes us successful, which is our culture. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And as we uh, concluded earlier, cultures so much, <laughs> almost everything. And without it, we're toast. So that's, and, that's great. And honestly, I, I think I got that because of those years of watching those teams is recognizing that we're pretty small. You know, we are 80 employees on a kind of a, a busy day, right? Yeah. Is that if, and many of our competitors on the, on the dental medical device side, our customers are companies that are 10 times our size. Uh-huh. We have to be really good at executing yeah. and can't let barriers and politics get in the way of our 80 people. So if we don't have a good culture, we can't execute quickly and rapidly and successfully. So it's just as imperative as maintaining our key objectives. Yeah. So what's a trait? If you could say, if you could pick one trait that you could instill in every employee, what would it be? Continuous improvement. Hmm. Because I think if you have a mindset of constantly looking to improve, you're a problem solver. You're a learner. You are looking for solutions. And they don't have to be big. I tell people, like, if we just got a little bit better every day, think of how far we would be at the end of the year. So if people have that trait of not sitting back and thinking they've arrived, they've learned it all, they have all the answers, but they're looking how to make something, their job, their process, themselves just a little bit better every day, the organization radically transforms over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, as the, the chief cultural officer, you know, you're taking, taking responsibility for um, your culture and it's on you to, to set the tone in terms of you know, motivation and energy level to be those, you know, that constant innovative, uh, that innovative value. Um, what do you do to stay inspired and energetic to, to kind of set the standard for, for your folks? Well, I think personally, I, I'm also always learning and trying to have that same value in me. So I do a lot of reading, but then I've also learned over the years, reflection time, is just as important to integrate that thinking, to renew your own mind, to stop out of the tactical execution things that in manufacturing, we're, we're very tactical a lot of the time. So I get up really early. I journal. I am a woman of faith, so I spend some time praying, um, exercising, trying to get mind, body, and soul in a good place so that mm. when I show up at work, I can be fully present to the people. And I have an amazing team. And I love what we do. I love the products we make. So it's kind of fun to come to work. But I also recognize that if I don't take time, which is a vacation, a long weekend here and there, yeah. then I lose some of that edge. So it's it's 
being present when I'm at work, but also taking time away from work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. Um, win the morning, win the day, right? Right. <laughs> People don't and I think see... that started out with being a musician and having to practice before I went to school and uh-huh. after years of getting up early and just having a discipline, like it just works for me. I know it doesn't work for everyone, but yeah. I, yeah. my day goes very wrong if I don't have that routine. I hear you. I hear you. Finding experienced, vetted aerospace contract workers ready to work with highly specialized skill sets isn't easy. Onan Aerospace can help with a wide pool of the best talent, attracted through our superior benefits. To learn more, visit onanaerospace.com. So what's the significant challenge that your industry is facing right now? Oh, people. 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 Skilled people. Um, one of the key elements of our medical device for dentistry is some very complex 3D imaging software. We essentially make a device that allows you to do digital impressions. So if you've ever had any sort of restorative dentistry or braces, they typically give you that nasty goo material in your mouth and you try not to choke on it. Well, we can do all that digitally and build a 3D model of your mouth real time. Wow. That takes very sophisticated software development skills, and we can always use more. And it's I can have a job description open for six months before I can find a, a candidate to fill that. So for me, skilled resources are just getting harder and harder, even for some of the other positions that it used to be. If you posted a job for a buyer, you got 300 resumes. Yeah, We're just not seeing that anymore. And when I talk to all of my other friends in the same space, even in different industries, it seems like skilled labor is becoming more and more of a challenge for all of us. And I yeah. don't see it getting better, which may be good for your business, but not good for well, my it's, business. It's hard for us too. I, I know it's, it's really, it seems like our business swings from being an employee market to being an employer market. But uh, I agree. I don't, I don't think that this labor shortage is going to end anytime soon. I don't, uh, it w- there would have to be some pretty uh, big things to happen, honestly, to, to reverse that trend. You know, so it's this it's is hard. Where if we can't fill positions, it's, it's tough we, for us to do our We're job. looking at AI to do some less skilled tasks, right? Mm. Because if I can free some people up to do tasks that I can have a machine do, then they can do the skilled tasks that only they can do because it really is becoming... What can we offload from the skilled people because yes. there's just not enough of skilled people? Yeah, 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 yeah. Even in manufacturing, um, which you might think, well, you know, direct labor, to, we do really complex assembly to find really good skills out there that are dependable, that show up, mm-hmm. that are cross-trainable is definitely different than it was even five years ago. Are you um, typically looking for folks that are coming to you with those skills or do you have a a development program for some of those roles because you're right the the um those new collar workers are are hard to find with with specific technical skills so we don't have a formal uh training program but we will look at people you know that are wanting to work that have aptitude when right. we're a small company we can only absorb so many sure. of those we do internships because that needs coaching and mentoring and training and 
when you're pretty tight on resources, you don't have a ton of extra resources to do that. But I always try to have some of those in the pipeline because I think, just like we talked about diversity, fresh eyes, fresh perspective, mm-hmm. see things that you start to get blind to. Um, if you look at our population, we have some employees that have been here since day one. Mm-hmm. And then we have some employees that are starting next week. Sure. And I love that, you know, fresh out of school, sure. um, I'm, I'm having a young man that's in high school coming to do a little tour and learn. He's thinking about being an engineer. So uh-huh. we're trying to have that whole bridge of age experience um, in the company because I think that's another diversity that makes us good. We have some people mm-hmm. with PhDs and we have some people that probably just graduated from high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, um, you operate at a global scale and you know for the last... I don't know, 25, 30 years, we, we've been on a pretty straight line toward globalization, mm-hmm. just internationally, right? But it seems like with the rise of China, geopolitical turmoil, the um, supply chain issues that were surfaced during COVID, the pendulum's kind of swinging back the other way with that. What do you see, you know, it's, it's almost becoming isolationist. Like there's a, there's a vein of that even out there, at least onshoring, nearshoring, domestic production. There's a lot of talk. What do you see as somebody that's dialed into this over the next few years? How do you see that developing? Boy, if I totally knew that answer, I could be rich and just go around <laughs> and tell everybody what to do. But I do think... Um, I had a very wise woman tell me many years ago when I was um, raising young children that um, balance, you know, the pendulum always swung to either extreme before it found the middle. Hmm. And I think that offshoring, outsourcing, you know, became the thing. It's cheaper there. We can get it cheaper. And even when I was working for a company that that's part of our business model, we would try to coach clients into But when you look at the whole cost, is it really cheaper? Because sometimes it's just not. I hope that's what we're moving to is we're coming back to center where not everything should be made domestically and not everything should be made overseas. But looking at the product, looking at where the end customers are, looking at the cost of not just manufacturing, but getting it back and forth and tariffs, um, lead times, how fast does your customer need the product? When you take all of it into account, making the right decision about where you source products, maybe you even need to source them in more than one location because that's the other thing we've learned. Between tsunamis, hurricanes, fires, war, if you have all of your eggs in one basket, so Mm. to speak, that's pretty frightening. So I hope we're leading to a more objective, thoughtful decision about where we supply product and I love manufacturing in the United States. I'd love to do more here, but I don't think that's completely realistic either. Let's be wise and pick the things that make sense where they make sense. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. Um, what do you think E4D is gonna look like in five years? Oh, I hope completely different than we do today. Yeah? Because I think uh, when I worked at Flex and in before, um, I had the opportunity to work with some really big companies and some of my colleagues did and those names that went bankrupt because they thought they had it all worked out and they sat back and celebrated their amazing success and then um, didn't innovate and that upstart company came and took them over. Mm -hmm. If we're doing the same thing we're doing now in five years, we won't 
be a successful company. So I hope we've got new products and different customers and we've grown our people's skill set. And I always tell customers when they come in, if this factory looks the same the next time you visit me, there's probably something wrong because we should be innovating a little bit all the time. So five years, we should look really different than today. Good answer. I love it. How can folks find out uh, connect with you, uh, find out more about your, uh, about your company, maybe coming to work with, with you guys. So, uh, I have a LinkedIn profile and I think you can probably put that in the show notes. And then, yep. um, our company website has a lot of information about us as well as ways to connect with us from the website. Okay. Well, and then if good. you're, if you're a woman wanting to talk to somebody who's been there, I do do coach some women on the side so you can check that out at at uh, my own personal website. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes too. That's great. I don't have a lot of time, but I have a handful of women I work with that, as you said, are trying to make that transition and want to work with someone who's been there and had kids and knows how it is to go from starting their career to maybe someday being CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I hope, uh, I hope you don't get absolutely buried with requests because it's been a good it's been a good interview i enjoyed it well it's been a blast thank you so much and for all you women thinking about manufacturing it's awesome i encourage you to check it out all right we'll leave it there until next time keep it real thank you for listening this podcast was powered by owning a family of staffing companies providing real staffing solutions to manufacturing, logistics, and food processing companies across the United States of America. To get in touch or learn more about partnering with an owning group company, visit us at www.owninggroup.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.